Joyce Tapley, as a CEO of a multi-million dollar healthcare center, is a proven thought leader on matters of public health. We created this podcast because it's time for a real discussion about the state of healthcare in our nation. Welcome to a new episode of Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. Welcome to the Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley, and I am your host, Joyce Tapley. I am pleased to welcome my longtime friend, Dr. Eduardo Sanchez. I've known Dr. Sanchez for many years. Actually, it's probably close to 20 years now. And I'm excited about that because now we're getting a chance to do some things together again. Currently, he serves as the chief medical officer for prevention at the American Heart Association. He leads the National Hypertension Control Initiative, a blood pressure control cooperative agreement with the Federal Office of Minority Health and the Health Resources and Services Administration, which we call HRSA, as well as the American Heart Association Clinical Lead on Target BP for Blood Pressure, which is a joint blood pressure control initiative with the American Medical Association. And he serves on numerous health-related boards and committees at the local, state, and national levels. Dr. Sanchez obtained his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, an MPH from the UT Health Sciences Center at Houston School of Public Health, a Master's of Science in Biomedical Engineering from Duke University, and a Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Engineering, and a Bachelor's of Arts in Chemistry from Boston University. The man knows everything. I'm just going to tell you right now. Welcome, my friend, to our show, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I got to say that I'm embarrassed at all the stuff I did, and maybe it's just I couldn't learn it. And so I just stayed in school and got more and more degrees. But thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm excited. You know, as long as I've known you, you're so calm and you're so personable that I never would have known that you have done all of those types of educational degrees. You're just a natural person, a natural nice person. And I appreciate your being on a show and just sharing some of your wisdom with us over the next few minutes. First, let's talk about the state of cardiovascular health in America. From your perspective, give us a snapshot of the national condition for all Americans. And let's just kind of drill down to the realities of this as it relates to the social determinants of health. So I would say to you that the cardiovascular health of America is okay. But it's just okay, and it could be a whole lot better. And I say okay because in the course of the last 100 years and even the last 20 years, things have gotten better. There is no doubt about it. We don't smoke as a society at the levels that we used to. We have new and better ways of taking care of the things that lead to heart attacks, strokes, and heart failure. But there is so much room to do better. So that's one part of it. Second part of it is, those gains and those challenges that we need to address have not been born equally across the population. And so there are disparities by race, ethnicity that we have to take a hard look at and say, that's not okay. And there are disparities by socioeconomic status. People who are in households of lower income have a disproportionate burden of the challenge uh, part of that equation. And then when we look at the social determinants of health categories, things like educational attainment, I mentioned income already, access to health care, 
the ability to get yourself from point A to point B easily, that is transportation. Housing, that's another area where there is disproportionality that is concentrated in places that then exacerbates the challenge part of the we could be healthier from a cardiovascular health perspective. Right. I hope that helped. It does. But you know, something else that I want to hear about is just even the differences in men and their conditions, their heart conditions versus women, because there's, we're seeing that there's a difference in how we address whatever conditions we may have or think we may have. There are absolutely gender differences and there are also sex differences. There's also differences in the degree to which we have the capacity to, to do something about. And what do I mean there? I'm a man. And we men do not utilize healthcare to the same extent for too long in our lives as compared to women. And so that's an issue. The more opportunity there is to do something, the more opportunity there is to address those challenges. Having said that, it is also true that uh, too often uh, women who show up with symptoms that might be stroke and or heart attacks are not being taken as seriously sometimes because the presentation is a little bit different than what's been described in Mm -hmm. textbooks. And sometimes there's that kind of delay. And as long as we're talking about it, those delays also occur across race, ethnicity. And so they're too often just to be use a broad category. I don't like to use broad categories, but just that broad category of people of color sometimes are not treated as according to guideline as quickly as other folk are. And that contributes some more to those disparities and to those challenges that can be addressed. And I'm glad you said that, too, about how there are some differences. I think one of the things I'd like for us to talk about a little bit later, if we can, is just what are some of the symptoms that women should be looking for and what men should be looking for? Because we do brush off different symptoms or feelings, not really necessarily knowing that that could be something that's heart-related. Absolutely. I will say, as the chief medical officer for prevention, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time talking about how to keep those symptoms from ever manifesting in the first place, because that would be a way better deal than knowing what to do when something bad happens. Really, really important, but doing the things that might keep those bad things from happening at least as important, if not more important. That's right. I mean, it's no different than our having to maintain our car and maintain our home and all those things that keep things from breaking down. We need to do the same thing with our bodies. So let's talk about the mission and the purpose of the American Heart Association. Give our listeners a feel for the organization's values and your role and responsibilities with the company. Absolutely. So I love our mission statement because, A, I can remember it. And B, it's kind of an awesome mission statement, and that is to be a relentless force for a world of longer, healthier lives. And I love that mission statement because it says whatever it takes, whatever it takes to achieve longer, healthier lives, we're going to be involved. And so that means that, yeah, the things that the American Heart Association, which is going to celebrate 100 years of existence in 2024, has been doing around things like how do you address sudden cardiac arrest? Yes. And we can all remember we were watching that football game when all of a sudden the science that the American Heart Association has been helping to develop and put into practice was one of the reasons we talk about the person surviving as opposed to a eulogy for that human being. 
In addition, not only sudden cardiac arrest, but focus on what do we do when someone's got a heart attack and are we doing all the right things at all the right times? Knowing signs and symptoms, calling 911, getting to the emergency room as quickly as possible, having the emergency room staff do all the things that it needs to do. But as we have done that work over 100 years, we've come to realize more and more that taking care of things after they happen really important, but we've begun as an organization and our mindset has shifted more upstream, and I'm doing air quotes, upstream meaning before things happen. So upstream refers to the notion of rather than pull people out of the river after they fell off the cliff, let's keep them from falling into the river by doing something at the cliff. So those things include the first step up is addressing and understanding that there are lifestyle or what I like to call modifiable risk factors. It sounds more sanitized, but it is about not trying to judge people for mm -hmm. what they do or don't do. Modifiable risk factors include things like whether you smoke or not, uh -huh. whether you are eating healthfully or not, whether you are physically active or not, whether you're getting enough sleep or not. But the truth is, and you know this, Joyce, is that the ability of some to do those things versus others to do those things might depend on your life circumstance. Yeah. The American Heart Association has come to realize it is not enough to tell people that you need to eat healthy. You might need to think about, is it possible for that person to eat healthy? Are there supermarkets in their community? That's going to be at least one question. And can they afford the food that is healthy for them? And so the American Heart Association has moved its focus not only from treatment and then to prevention by knowing lifestyle or modifiable risk factors, but also to beginning to understand, as we mentioned earlier, the role that social determinants of health can play and what role an organization like the American Heart Association can play in addressing those issues. Here's an example. We are big advocates for making sure that healthy food is served in schools to children. That's really, really important. That's but one example. But we've come to realize, and it took us a little while to sort of make a statement about it, but we were already beginning to think about the notion of structural inequity and structural racism. And 2020, the year where COVID helped us all see very clearly the disproportionality of compounding context with opportunity, with burden of disease, and then more people dying of COVID that looked a certain way or had a certain income or had certain diseases. And when you put too many of those together, it made things even worse yes. on the one hand. And then the social injustice that we witnessed in 2020 culminating and really, really catching the attention of everyone in America around George Floyd's murder. Those two things were flashpoints for the American Heart Association to say, we're putting a stake in the ground. We're going to call out structural racism. And one of the things that makes me really proud, because if you think I forgot that you asked me a question, I didn't forget. <laughs> and that's that we made 10 commitments to do something to the tune of a billion dollars of commitment to address structural racism and to mitigate its effects or eliminate it. And I'm proud to say that the progress report on that is we are exceeding what were our commitments in some and are very close to being there on others. And we still have another year to come under the deadline wire. So 
principle is to be a relentless force for longer, healthier lives. And our journey over 100 years has moved us from treatment all the way to understanding that there are structural inequities that have been perpetuated and contribute to continued disparities, things like redlining, things like states that don't expand Medicaid. Uh Uh-oh, we live in one of those states. Those are things that are manifestations of and or perpetuations of structural inequity and structural racism. And I'm glad to hear that you all are getting closer to the goals that you have established much faster. And I'm hoping, too, that, you know, for those who are listening, the younger generation certainly has had access to a lot of different things. And I hope that they're starting to realize, too, that they can prolong their lives if they do a lot more prevention. And we just need to make sure that they understand what all that means, because there are so many things coming at them that they're not always quite sure of what's best for them. And getting into the schools is, again, trying to make sure that everyone has something, a good meal to eat. That's still a challenge. You know, even the way the middle schools and high schools are, the amount of time that they have to spend with lunch or breakfast is very limited. And so if they're going to go in line, for example, to get whatever that healthy food is, by the time they get back to their table, it's time to go to class. So we're hoping that even in, you know, as we try to integrate these improvements in the schools, that it really does allow them to take advantage of it. Can I just add around education? Because it's a reminder to me. So one of the things we collectively know, and AHA is working to figure out how it can play a role. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing we know, because it's one thing for young people to know what to do. It's another thing, as I mentioned earlier, to create the context and the environments to allow that to happen. So one of the things that we know is a social determinant of health that makes a difference is educational attainment. And what we know is that the availability and uptake of universal pre-K, as an example, will increase the likelihood that any given student by third grade is reading at third grade level or better, which increases the likelihood that that young person is going to graduate from high school. And I want to say here and now that the idea that College isn't for everyone. I don't disagree with that. But the idea that somehow the ability to think critically and maneuver in a world that's kind of complicated isn't important for everybody is something that we got to remind ourselves of. That's the goal of graduating from high school and beyond. It's not about going to college. It's about developing the critical thinking skills that allow us to navigate in these complicated lives where even you and I who are in the healthcare world struggle, for example, to figure out there's two things that are struggles for me. One is how does insurance actually work day to day with all the different variables that you got to track? And the other one is how does reporting my income, how does that work? Because that's not as straightforward as one would like it to be. Graduating from high school makes it more likely that someone's going to be able to maneuver those two essentialities than not graduating from high school. That is very true. That's right. And we know that that's what one of the solutions really needs to be. We just have to advocate with our elected officials and elect the ones that will represent us. Absolutely. And regarding longer, healthier lives, graduating, having one year of education beyond high school, and that could be vocational education or academic education, dramatically increases the life expectancy of that individual. So among the medicines that we might prescribe for longer, healthier lives, educational attainment one year beyond high school might be 
the minimum that we would go for so that we could all live longer, healthier lives. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful solution. So now we'd like to go to a break. For everyone who's listening, please stay around because we'll be back in a little bit. Inspire Art Dallas uses advocacy, fundraising, and public events to encourage the flourishing of the City of Dallas public art program and to enrich public art experiences for residents and visitors to the City of Dallas. I'm Kay Kalos, Public Art Program Manager for the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture. My name is Kaya and I'm almost a teenager. I have a real problem. My daddy and my grandfather love pie. For my daddy, it's apple. For my poppy, it's anything lemon. But they won't bring me any pie. I don't think that's fair. They always go to Judy Pie on Main Street in Grapevine, where Miss Judy and her bakers make 20 different kinds of pies and cinnamon rolls on the weekend. But I don't get any. They tell me I can have pie when I'm a teenager, like pie is only for grown-ups or something. Can someone please call my daddy and my poppy and tell them I need pie? In the meantime, you can go to JudyPie.com, or if you're in Grapevine, Texas, visit Judy Pie on Main Street. And if my daddy or my poppy are there, tell them that Kaya wants a piece of pie. Welcome back, audience. You are listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley, and I have my special guest, Dr. Eduardo Sanchez. What would the benefit be for expanding Medicaid in Texas, or any state for that matter? Oh, my. The benefit is that people have access to the health-promoting aspects of medical care. What does that mean? The health-promoting aspects is going to the doctor who might go through what your modifiable risk factor profile is for cardiovascular disease and say, here's some opportunities for improvement. You don't have disease yet. Your blood pressure seems to be okay. Your weight seems to be okay. Your cholesterol is okay. And you don't have diabetes. But there are some things that you can do to have that be your condition if you're in your 20s until you're 50 and you're in your 40s until you're 60 and beyond and get that counseling. The other is it provides the opportunity for the preventive screening. Some of it is, what is your blood pressure? What is your cholesterol? What is your weight? But listen, I work for the American Heart Association, but I understand there's other organ systems in our body. That's a way to screen for things like colorectal cancer at the appropriate age. It's a way to make sure that the question is asked, are you up to date on your vaccines and getting that taken care of? It is a way to make sure that all other things about health promotion and disease prevention can be addressed. And if you've got one of those uh, challenges, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, you suffered a stroke, you've been diagnosed with depression, there is a place where you can get regular care. So I'll give you just a little insight just based on hypertension. Hypertension is the fancy word for high blood pressure that's been diagnosed. The percentage of people in this country with hypertension that's controlled is not as high as it could be. It's under 50%. So there's some work to do. Joyce, y'all are one of the health centers that is part of the National Hypertension Control Initiative, where we're trying to take blood pressure control to higher levels for folks that are getting care in places like Foremost and other community health centers. But there's some other factors, and we've touched on some of them. Mm -hmm. So the likelihood that your blood pressure is going to be under control if you have hypertension is higher 
if you have higher educational attainment than lower educational attainment, is higher if your household income is higher than lower, is higher if you have certain kinds of insurance versus no insurance at all. So back to the question about Medicaid, if you don't have insurance, the likelihood of control is in the mid-20s, 24%. If you've got insurance, Medicaid being one of them, hovers above 40%. That's a huge difference when you're talking about millions of people. But here's the most critical factor, in my opinion, and why having Medicaid expanded will be a good thing. The level of control, blood pressure control in persons who have diagnosed hypertension is only 8% if you haven't seen a provider in the last 12 months. And I guarantee you, you would agree with me, not having insurance is more likely going to result in not seeing somebody in 12 months than having insurance. So expanding Medicaid in this state could make a huge difference. And oh, by the way, we talked earlier about income. Unfortunately, the percentage of persons in low-income households who are Black, Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native is higher than for white populations in particular. And so there is the added benefit with expanded Medicaid of addressing health equity at the same time. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. And what was the impact and influence of COVID and the long COVID? That's one of the things you didn't mention on the pandemic for cardiovascular health in America. Well, there's no doubt early on in the pandemic, it was very clear that the risk factors for cardiovascular disease and having cardiovascular disease were predictive of, correlated with worse outcomes if you were infected with COVID. So I will take a moment right now to say, anyone who's listening to this, if you are not up to date on your COVID booster, go get your COVID booster because you might ought to think about putting a mask on when you're in a really crowded place, particularly if you hear somebody coughing, holy moly, put on a mask, but go get that COVID vaccine because it is the thing that's going to help prevent that really bad outcome. So that has been borne out. That is that folks with high blood pressure, folks with cardiovascular disease have a higher risk of a bad outcome with COVID if they get it. And oh, by the way, a higher risk of a bad outcome if they get influenza. So let me just do a double plug here. Go get your flu vaccine if you haven't gotten it. And unless this is airing in the summer of 2023, it is not too late to go get your flu vaccine. It will protect you if you come into contact with somebody who's got it. I'm glad you said that because, you know, people don't really know, you know, what period of time they can actually get the flu shot. So that's really helpful for folks to know. So we're talking in early February, and I would say well into mid-March, it's not too late. But I would also say you can go to influenza activity, search that term, and you can get some information about what's going on. You know, for those who are search geeks, they can search on their own and get some information. As for long COVID, you know, we're just beginning to learn about long COVID. I imagine you're seeing some of it in Foremost Community Health Center. And there's a couple of things that are unknowns because it's a brand new disease. We don't know if for some people it will, I wouldn't say run its course, but begin to dissipate in terms of the symptomatology. We don't know the degree to which it crowds out the ability to take care of other things in a community health center like this one because there's always more to do than there is people and time to do it. And it just becomes another thing that we need to get really good at. And I would say to you that it's still early in the game to understand 
with specificity the relationship between cardiovascular disease and long COVID. But having said that, I will say with cardiovascular disease, there are things that can be done to prevent and to better manage. And they include addressing these modifiable risk factors because those modifiable risk factors, healthy eating, physical activity, smoking, and sleep on the one hand, and then controlling blood pressure, controlling cholesterol, controlling blood glucose, and doing your best to either maintain your weight where it is or lose weight to get it into a healthier zone. Those are things that are really important, whether you have cardiovascular disease or don't have cardiovascular disease. If you've had a stroke, still important. If you haven't had a stroke, it helps prevent it, et cetera, and so on. So just want to mention, we call those life's essential eight, the eight elements that I mentioned. And what I would say to you in terms of longer, healthier lives, the degree to which a person reaches 50 to 60 years of age with modifiable risk factors in the good status, and that's a technical term, ladies and gentlemen, in the good status is the degree to which they will live longer, healthier lives with a low burden of cardiovascular disease and the things that come with it, lower incidence of stroke, lower incidence of heart attacks, lower incidence of heart failure. I do want to say something as it relates to those, because you had mentioned about folks with some type of insurance, including Medicaid. As long as they take advantage of that, they have a better chance and better outcomes. But for those who don't have insurance, just for the folks who are listening, the federally qualified health centers, the community-based health centers that are across the country, located across the country, including foremost family health centers, will see anyone who comes through the door. So if you do not have insurance, which a significant number of our patients that we serve do not, we still provide that same comprehensive level of care for anyone who walks through the doors. Now, we're not operating as a free clinic. We still have to provide the services in a way that is quality and professional, and we charge for our services. But if you don't have the funds to pay for it, then we're able to work with you on that. We want to make sure that we are a place for access to everyone. And that's one of the things I wanted to make sure folks know, because if they don't have insurance, they're wondering, now, where am I going to go? Do I need to go to the ER? No, you do not need to go to the emergency room. That is the last place to go if it is not a life-threatening condition. And so we have primary care providers all over the country in FQHC. So just want to put that plug in, too. That's a good plug to put in. And what wasn't in the description of all the things I've done in my life is that I came up in a federally qualified health center. I learned to be a doctor in a federally qualified health center. And I've said, I think I said it yesterday, I would have taken my mother to the federally qualified health center that I worked in and the ones in my community and any of the ones in Dallas, Texas. So I think you said some key things. One, it's all comers with a focus on folks who don't have insurance. But the other is that the quality of care is an important component. And now in the role that I'm in and the things that I see, I see that federally qualified health centers not only are holding themselves to account, but sure. in comparison to a lot of others, they're doing an outstanding job when you consider all of the different challenges that exist. And so one more thing I'm going to do is I'm going to thank anyone who's been working in federally qualified health centers ever. Yes. But in particular, the last three years have been years where there was extraordinarily high demand because of the things going on with COVID. And I will say that um, I know that FQHCs are one of those places where folk could get vaccines in places where they knew the staff, 
They could talk to the staff about the pros and the little few cons and get people past their misgivings about getting a vaccine. So thank you, Joyce, for the work you've done in helping to make Foremost be the contributor to the health of this community that has been, particularly the last three years. All right. It has been an honor. Thank you. And that concludes another installment of Healthcare Chat. For all upcoming and previous episodes, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit the subscribe button and you will always be notified when a new podcast is published. Until next time, thank you again for listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. 